we need to talk about ideas, good ones and bad ones. We need to learn stuff about the world. We need an honest, intelligent, thought-provoking, and entertaining review of what the hell happened on this planet in the last seven days. We need to sit back and listen to the Iron Fist and the Velvet Glove. Kieran, thanks for agreeing to do this interview. Um, by way of background for the people listening, uh, we actually went to the same high school together. I was about four years after you, and I remember seeing you walking the the playground, tall, lanky, big mop of hair. Even in those days, you were already protesting as a high school student. You were sort of in the media and and things at that time. You were known as a protester. Yeah, well, my last year at high school was when the Queensland government suspended civil liberties. So, and um, that just happened to be converging with a large anti-nuclear movement throughout Western Europe and North America. And the response to that in Australia was an anti-uranium mining and export movement. So we began, we began blockading the wharf when I was at high school. And then Bjorka Peterson suspended all street marches and gatherings of three or more people and handing out leaflets and all that stuff. So, um, I think my initial arrest at school, there were 418 of us arrested, uh, including, um, the lead guitarist of the Saints and, um, Ed Cooper and the lead guitarist of the go-betweens, Grant McLennan, and a lot of other good people. You were in good company, and you were still at high school when you got your yeah, well, the first time. Yeah, I, um, you know, just where, where we're here doing this interview um, is where I grew up, and we back, literally share a back fence with the military. Uh, it's now called Gallipoli Barracks, and the Aboriginal word Inogra uh, is the suburb. And um, so, you know, the sound of gunfire and helicopters going over the house, it was um, part of growing up during the Vietnam War here in the 60s and 70s. So that was quite an audio backdrop. And a lot of the kids at my primary school's parents would have been in the military at that stage. And um, and then also my father was very much an Irish Republican socialist, I guess, and a very good singer. So... We were brought up with a lot of rebel songs and then... So, so around the dinner table when you were growing up, was he quite strong on advocating for the sort of causes that you ended up getting involved in? Well, but, well his father was a member of the IRA and um, arrested during the War of Independence uh, and accused of killing a British soldier and then released with the treaty and then during the Civil War in Ireland he had to do a run out of Canada and he got picked up crossing the Canadian border and he ended up in a jail in Auburn in New York that I, I kind of ended up in 70 years later um, before being deported back to Ireland and, and, and Mountjoy Prison in Dublin. Um, so that was a very celebrated leg- legacy in the family. Yeah. Um, and my father was raised by his maternal grandparents who were big fans of James Connolly, who was not only an Irish Republican but a socialist. And um, so, you know, when I was about eight or nine years of age, uh, the war in the north of Ireland kicked off again um, following the repression of the civil rights movement and provisional IRA developed, etc. So um, there was... Quite an intense, you know, the, what was happening in Belfast and Derry were more present to us than what was happening in Vietnam, yes. which ironically was happening from behind our house. And, um, 
My mother had three uncles who went through the base behind our house to World War One. One one who was at Gallipoli, um, one who came back quite PTSD and and lived for another forty years without contacting the family. Uh, so there's kind of a rich kind of history. And then we're going to school in the Valley, which was a red light district at St. James, uh, located there, Christian Brothers School. And then a lot of the police corruption was very overt in the Valley with the, um, the prostitution and the gambling, mm. which is now quite legal. Yeah. <laughs> um, but back then it was a source of, um, police corruption and, and organized crime. So you are a bit of a product of your environment and your culture from your early days. It was because most people, you know, I would have at least been terrified at the prospect of being arrested as as a as a teenager. So you, you know, I look at it and think, well, you were quite brave and courageous and fearless to be prepared to do that. But I guess you were mixing in a circle, or you had family stories that made that a bit more commonplace than most people. Yeah, I, I, I guess I always viewed political activism in Queensland as a body contact sport, you know, and I'd grown up playing a lot of soccer, football, so I was used to body contact. But um, it was quite brutal, uh, a Queensland police force and quite amateurish. Um, I was beaten up my first week at university in frame with assault, and the guy who beat me up was John Freddie Johnson of the consorting squad. And, you know, the consorting squad were a squad supposed to consort with criminals, and, and he eventually got three years. He got sentenced to three years in prison by the end of that year. Um and, and he beat you up, like he arrested you and beat you up, or he just found you when yeah, he beat me up, then he arrested me. Oh, right. <laughs> I mean, on other occasions I've been arrested, then beaten up in the watch house. But this, this time it was, uh, it was on TV footage and everything, and um, and yeah, and then they charge. But when they beat you up, they usually charge you with assault to, to justify if any yes. footage has been caught yeah. as a response. And uh, I was a very skinny um, kid, as you remember, and uh, so yeah, that. That uh, was yeah. I was only seventeen when that happened. So, mm. so just um, just reading from the Wikipedia page on you here. Um, yes, you took part in the uh, civil rights protests against the Premier Joby Doyke Peters in the eighties, and you came into contact with the Catholic Worker Movement, and you subsequently founded Brisbane's West End Catholic Worker Community. Yeah, we, we found a. Catholic worker in West End in 1982, and prior to that, a group of us who were at Griffith University were developing an interest in the fusion um, of Christianity, anarchism, and pacifism. And I guess at that point, we were quite influenced by an academic out there, Brian Labor, who had been like one of the student leaders of the 1960s in Australia, and he was a libertarian socialist and had a radical critique of Marxism. Um, and then during that period, we stumbled, you know, we thought that we'd uh, come up with this, uh, intersection between Christianity, anarchism, and pacifism. Then we heard about Leo Tolstoy, read him. Mm. Then we stumbled across Dorothy Day and the Catholic Worker Movement that was actually putting this philosophy into praxis since the 1930s in the United States. So we wrote to them, different communities over there started swapping newsletters, and then we thought, oh, we'll open a house for Aboriginal street kids. And we'd had contact with, uh, there was a radical nun in West End who was raising four Aboriginal children. And um, I had I had contact with her, Cass Dawson, since I was at high school. 
And you know, it just became very obvious that, that Aboriginal people were living in a, in a parallel universe in Queensland. Mm. And um, like until I was eight, it was illegal for an Aboriginal to vote in an election. Until I was 13, it was illegal to cohabitate with a native under the uh, Vagrancy Act. And um, so it became... And my father had already, always drummed into us, you know, what's happened to the Aboriginal people in Australia is what happened to the Irish and in Ireland and um yep. so that which a lot of Irish don't make that connection you know, it can be quite racist you know you know I've never heard the connection myself oh, until okay. just now colonized people yeah. <laughs> we've been colonized for 800 years so you know the term paddy wagon is like nigger wagon it's like boom wagon it's an innately racist term <laughs> but it's so mainstream even the left in Australia use the term paddy wagon you know so. yes yep so um so let me see here um you were looking to address youth homelessness among the Aboriginal community and you described the Catholic worker movement as comprised of three practices um, in order to constitute a life of integrity, according to this Wikipedia page anyway. <laughs> Correct it. me if it's wrong. Um, one is living in intentional community. The second is practising the works of mercy. And the third is nonviolent prophetic witness. So, um, and you aim to enact this through living in community with the poor, uh, prison visitation and direct action against war. That, so, so in your early days, you sort of came up with that philosophy of life as what your guiding principles were going to be? Yeah, I, I guess, yeah, probably say prophetic resistance and, um, and, and looking, you know, at the early church before it got, co- got co-opted by the Roman Empire as these kind of autonomous, relatively autonomous utopian communities. And, um, and then also discovering the contemporary people who are still alive at that point, Dorothy Day and the two radical priests, Philip and Daniel Berrigan, who'd led the draft board ra- raid movement of the 1960s during the Vietnam War in the United States. So they were kind of role models for us. And, um, so we began living off the grid together in West End. We'd make, living out of baking bread, making candles and soap and um, homemade beer and um, then inviting into that community. Well, primarily it was Aboriginal street kids, but we also had a few people released from Bogger Road as well. And um, and we we ourselves would, would be put into Bogger Road for, like, being arrested for free speech um violations and uh, blockading nuclear warships and stuff. So, And when they put us in Boggle Road, they put us in with the lifers and the heavies to scare us, but we eventually got on quite well with them and um, we helped start uh, the radio show on 4ZZZ Prisoners Program that's still going, I think. Right. So that was a lot of good interaction with the prison scene. And um, So if you're entering – so Boggle Road, dear listener, if you're not familiar with Brisbane, was sort of a notorious – Old style prison, uh-huh. and um, it it's, has a reputation that it was very rough, and <laughs> and but you're really the, the the hardcore prisoners are you saying treated you not too badly? Is that what you're saying? Um, usually, the chaotic factor in any prison is young people proving themselves. You know, people who are established or serious criminals, they just want to get out of that environment back to crime. Yep. Back to whatever. Anyway, um, so the chaotic factor is usually young people. And, uh, and Bogger Road is, is l- largely staffed 
there was a lot of ex-British military uh, with, with screws there, and a lot of them had done, a substantial number of them had done tours of Northern Ireland, the British Army, so they didn't like my name for a start. <laughs> and, um, yeah, so there was a lot of interesting interactions, and uh, I was actually in there in 88 when the guys were on the roof, uh, which led to the Kennedy Inquiry that closed the jail. So right. we were able to do a lot of solidarity work and yep. uh, we were kind of well-respected by people um, who are active inside the jail. Yep. So you took this as an opportunity to do more of the work that you were aiming to do anyway. Yeah, this is just another yeah. environment. Yeah, it was quite funny in 88. Um, we were, after the guys were on the roof, we were back in and we're in the maximum security area in the old jail that's still standing. And this guy we knew is now dead now, Gary Gray, but he'd been on the roof and um, they came up, approached us about they were planning an escape, you know, and they, they'd managed to saw through the bars in their own cells and get into one guy's cell, which was near the wall, and they asked if we would help them with this escape. So me and this other Catholic worker, we said, oh, can you give us five minutes? I'm all trapped in the small yard. And they said, yeah. So I went over and said, look, Went back to them and said, look, if you can commit to non-violence, we know you're not pacifists, they're like arm robbers and shit. Um, so the length of your escape attempt, uh, then we'll help you. And they're like, yeah, we'll be non-violent. So, okay, okay. So we told them where our car was and where they could hide out and we'd come up as soon as we were released and give them some money and clothing and stuff. And uh, we stayed up saying the rosary for a safe escape. <laughs> and, and, but we about three in the morning we heard screams and they were getting bashed and they got caught. Uh, right. So uh, that was an interesting extension of the Exodus, you know, and uh, preach liberty to the captives and all that kind of stuff. Yeah. So, so um, JB Jockey Peterson, um, your time in West End, your time in Bogger Road, uh, you know, Brisbane, a bit too small for you at that point. You were ready to spread your wings and head to America to look around and see yeah, the rest. Well, of I, I felt, you know, an old Catholic term is a vocation that I wanted to do this for life, and I really felt and in some ways I was leading the group in Brisbane. It was, I was the youngest. I was only 22, 23. So I felt a need to go and live with some elders and and get advice about how do you make this a lifelong thing, you know. So um, initially I went over in 87. I also had wanted to do a plowshares action in the United States because mm-hmm. I saw that as the central empire in the world um, and that um, – so, so you went to the States uh, in about late 80s, 89 or I went so. for 87 and um, I was uh, visited a number of communities and I was in a plowshares group preparing to do an action. And then um, I, ca- I came back, uh, a romance was falling apart, so I kind of came back suddenly here. And then I was here for 88, which was a bicentenary, which is when the guys were on the roof of the jail and the nuclear warship visits. And then I, that's when I got my last haircut, I think, in Bogoro there. And then I went back in 89, um, with Moana Cole, who, and who I'd met here. And, uh, we visited a number of communities and worked with communities. And then we, we part of a plowshares process that went for about 11 months. Yep. So any initial, can you remember any initial things that struck you on the difference when you moved to America with the communities? So the, the, from the poor, you know, Aboriginal communities you were dealing with in West End to right. the to the poor black and, I guess, Hispanic communities you might have been dealing with in America? Did, yeah, uh, I think well, a couple of differences about America. America is probably the only, for what it's worth, church-going part of the first world. Like mm. Western Europe is largely post-belief 
you know, there's about a million practicing Anglicans in England who are mostly English, and a million practicing Roman Catholics who are not, mostly not English. And then there's probably more more practicing Muslims than Christians in England now and stuff. Um, so that's a big, you know, when you speak with language of faith in America, you're still in the mainstream. If yep. you speak that way here on the left or whatever, you see, you know, you've kind of marginalized quite quickly. Mm. So that was interesting. <laughs> the intense different differences between poverty and wealth in the States is mind blowing. Yeah. The inequality. Yeah. And the lack of health care and the AIDS thing was just really kicking off in a big way then and the crack epidemic. Mm. And it's just, a much bigger scene than Brisbane, you know, I guess, sure. and uh, as is London. Yep. Um, so you were mentored or you're seeking some mentoring from Daniel Berrigan and Philip? Who were they? Yeah, I'd met Daniel in uh, Melbourne. Um, Daniel, uh, he joined the Jesuits at 16. He was quite a celebrated poet in the 1950s. He was part of the Kennedy Circle, President Kennedy. Um and his brother Philip had gone to war. He's in the Battle of the Bulge, probably, you know, killed a lot of people in his late teens and saw a lot of death. And he came back and joined the, he actually, when he came back, he was, went to college, the GI Bill, and he shared a room with John Cusack's father for three years, the yeah. actor. And that's how John Cusack's kind of connected with us. And, um, so, so and what, then he just, what advice did they have for you? Because you were looking okay, for advice. So, so Phil, Phil joined a Josephite order, which was working with black Americans, and he was influenced in Louisiana by Martin Luther King's movement. And then they then brought, brought that kind of experience to the anti-war movement, and they broke into a draft board, nine Catholics, it's called the Catonsville Nine. And um, it was a kind of iconic photograph from the Vietnam period of them burning draft cards with homemade napalm and they're on the front page of Time magazine. So it was that significant. Yeah. They were quite centrally placed in the you know, 50 million Catholics in the United States. And then uh, the FBI had a meeting in Nixon and they effectively marginalised them. In a very similar way that Julian Assange has gone from front page of Time magazine to, you know, rarely being seen. Um, so... They, they were the first ones who really introduced me to the scripture. Um, and uh, they were part of plowshares. They, well, following the resistance of the Vietnam War, which was largely breaking into draft boards and destroying draft files. Yep. Uh, in the late 70s and 80s, they began to uh, beat swords into plowshares, literally break into companies that are developing nuclear weapon systems and military bases and with hammers disable those weapon systems. Yep. So plowshares is a reference to the biblical f- prophecy of Isaiah chapter 2. And, and Micah chapter 4. Yeah. Yep. Which says, they shall beat their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks. Nation shall not lift up sword against nation, neither shall they learn war anymore. So taking swords and converting into agricultural yeah. implements plowshares movement that's correct yeah. yeah and so you you became a member of the anzus plowshares yeah so each plowshares like each catholic working community is autonomous so four of us uh grouped together two americans moana who's from new zealand and myself and we just called ourselves the anzus plowshares and we prepared to break into a b-52 bomber base as america was gearing up to Bombing Iraq in the late 1990. Mm. 
So, so you became aware of the bombers that were at the Griffiths Air Force Base? Yeah, there had been a plowshares action earlier there when they were being made nuclear capable in the late 80s, mm-hmm. and we knew some of the people involved with that. And we also had uh, Peter DeMott now, who's passed away, who's a Vietnam veteran, whose who's job, I think, was guarding B-52s in Vietnam. But uh, he had access to the base uh, being a veteran. Ah, so right. we had a lot of intel and uh, okay. Because as I'm reading about your exploits there, I'm thinking, how did you pull this off? I mean, yeah. you would normally consider these things to be, you know, so secured. Yeah. Yes. So that's, you know, what we say is the actions show the weapons aren't secure and they don't secure us. And um, yeah, so you know, other groups have got even to more hardened mm. sites and. Uh, yeah, we just did our homework, said our prayers. So we did surveillance of the base. We'd stay out overnight outside the base and time security vehicles and stuff like that. Yeah. But it, it was it was high risk, so we could have been shot. And um, So for those who don't know, um, after cutting through several fences, Bill and Sue entered a deadly force area and hammered and poured blood on a KC-135, a yeah. refuelling plane, and then proceeded to hammer and pour blood on the engine of a nearby cruise missile armed B-52 bombers or bomber that could be used in Iraq. And then somewhere else, simultaneously, you and Cole, is that, is that Moana? Moana, Moana Cole, yep, yeah. uh, entered the base at the opposite end of the runway and made a sign of the cross with blood on the runway, spray-painted, love your enemies, Jesus Christ. Um, and you hammered upon the railway, chipping at two sections, one being nearly five feet in diameter before you were detained. Yes. Yeah. So a month before we had broken in, but we couldn't get to the B-52. Yeah. And we broke out and kind of went on the run for a month. And then we went back on New Year's Day, which was a good time to do it, and uh, which was about 14 days before the war was launched. And right. uh, this time we decided rather than going collectively, we'd split up. Give yourself two different options. Yeah. yeah. And so you must have been there quite a while if you yeah, could we were, away to- Yeah, yeah, yeah. Like Bill and Sue were arrested, I think, within four or five minutes after doing disabling and we were out there for an hour like um it was dawn it was winter it's heavy snow and we could see security vehicles whizzing around the perimeter road so when we saw them we'd put our hammers down so they wouldn't think they were firearms yep. held up a banner but they just kept going and they were like detaining joggers jogging past the base right. then eventually the daily the air traffic controller of the base drives up checking for debris basically yes and um and that's when we were discovered and we invited him to join us, but he wasn't up for it, really. And so you got about 12 months in prison for that? Yeah, so there was a debate between the Air Force and the Prosecution Department. Uh, the Air Force wanted us charged with sabotage, and two of our people were sentenced 18 years for sabotage. I think about five received sentences of eight years. And the Prosecution Department, I think they thought the war wasn't going to go as well for the United States as it did and thought by the time we came to trial, there'd be anti-war feeling. And also they had prosecuted the previous plowshares group at that base on sabotage, and they had successfully argued that the B-52 is an innately offensive, not a defensive weapon. So sabotage is about affecting the national defence. Right. And B-50, well, the opening shots of the first Gulf War were eight B-52s, took off from Louisiana, flew the longest combat mission ever flown, fired 35 air-launched cruise missiles at high-priority targets, and flew back. And refueled four times by KC 135s. And then B 52s went to drop 30% of everything that was dropped in the first Gulf War. Um, that was equivalent to eight Hiroshima's. And the B 52s from our base, 
the ones that were still operative were moved to England and they bombed daily, napalm, fuel explosives, cl- yeah. cluster bombs. So, um, but ours didn't fly for, for that whole period. So it was in the garage or whatever. Yep. And so prison in America, you'd been to prison in Australia on many occasions. Was there uh, any differences or how did that experience Yeah, I guess we were assuming we'd get three to five years. So when we got one year, it was quite a pleasant surprise. And then I also assumed that I'd be doing my time in a penitentiary in the northeast, you know, playing bocce ball at the mafia or whatever. But um, they put, put me on con air and they flew me to Oklahoma, which is a central hub. So Conair goes out northwest, northeast loops, southwest, southeast, brings people to this, this uh, penitentiary in Oklahoma and then designates you. So from there, they flew me to El Paso on the Mexican border. And then they shipped me, uh, about eight hours, I think, into the outback to a little place called Pecos, which was a county jail. And there were 24 of us in a cage and six cages welded together. And 16 hours a day, those six cage doors were open. So I was effectively in a room of, you know, 140 men. And I was the only uh, white boy in the jail for most of the time. Uh, so it was 500 Mexicans and 50 of us who weren't Mexican, including about 25 Africans and Jamaicans and a few Filipinos. And, and, and was there a reason why they shipped you all the way over there? I, they generally have a policy in the States called diesel therapy, which is, to keep political prisoners on the move or geographically isolated. Yeah. And um, they achieved that. Right. Like all my connects were really in the northeast. Yeah. Uh, West Coast a little bit. But, uh, yeah, I didn't know anyone in Texas. Right. I didn't get visited for three months. Right. And then... Um, and did... So you... Again, it's so courageous to to... Be prepared to do that exercise thinking you're going to get three to five years. Yeah, it's a sense of abandonment in a sense. I remember I was like handcuffed. They were taking me in my first court appearance in Syracuse, New York, and the television crew were there and they shoved this mic in front of my face and said, are you prepared to go to jail to stop this war? And I'm like handcuffed. And I said, well, I guess I haven't got any choice now, you know. So it was just like, you know, a sense of abandonment and... um, there's footage of me on YouTube being interviewed from the jail in Texas, and I, you know, I haven't been drinking. I've been exercising every day. I look, I look quite healthy, and but it was a pretty stressful environment. Um, yeah. uh, you know, some really real brutality uh, there. And were you a victim of that, or were you just an observer? Uh, initially, no one would eat with me. It's really interesting. Um, so I ended up eating with, there were about 10 transsexual prostitutes. So I used to have breakfast with them. And, um, like people quite willing to do other stuff with them, but not eat with them. Right. Which, when you look at scripture, is quite interesting who, who you're allowed to eat with, who Jesus eats with, and the kind of laws he's breaking there or cultural codes. Yeah. Um, you know, I, I was on the only African soccer team in the jail. There were about seven Mexican teams, one African team. So whenever we played, there'd be like, 400 Mexicans screaming racist abuse. <laughs> so it was very atmospheric. Um, yep. And, you know, there were times when they just ethnically cleanse the wing of any black people, like just started bashing them. And as soon as something like that would kick off, the guards would disappear and they wouldn't be back for like 45 minutes, you know. Right. And, um, yeah. So. And they didn't care about your politics and what you'd done. Like, did they see that as. Were they supportive uh, or they didn't care or they were the against gu- A lot of the guards were ex-military or presently serving in the National Guard and were initially hostile. Yep. And then um, 
I was popular amongst the Muslim population. (laughs) And and people were like introducing me, oh, this is a guy who's hijacked the plane or blew up a plane. I'm like, oh, whatever works for you. (laughs) Um, So I was getting, what saved me, literally saved my ass, was um, how much support correspondence I got. So after the first few weeks, the mail, I I think I received like 2,000 letters. Oh, wow. And I became quite a celebrity, especially amongst stamp collectors in the jail. And um, that helped me. Playing football helped me, soccer. And um, then I started, I'd go to Mass and I'd be the only non-Mexican at Mass. And um, I played, uh, I wrote, I started writing letters in English to people's lawyers and girlfriends and that made me quite useful. Right. So I just built up my, Base from there, and yep. and yeah, I was probably in about five physical altercations, yep. which is quite a lot for a pacifist. <laughs> yes, but when you're backed into a corner, that's all you can do, I guess. Yeah. So you got out of there, and at some somehow you ended up um, uh, in London or in, in the UK. Did you come back to Australia and then off to the UK? Or yeah, I got. Eventually, it's actually yesterday was the anniversary of the date I was supposed to get out, June fifteenth. And before that, they they transferred me to a penitentiary in Louisiana where they had two federal courts and they charged me with being guilty of a crime of moral turpitude and overstaying a visa and put $50,000 bail on me. And um, I'd never heard the word turpitude before, had no yeah. clue what it was, you know. And um, so I was there for another six weeks after my release date and then people raised the 50000 Casey Kasem, do you know Casey Kasem? No. He's the voice of Shaggy on Scooby Doo, and he's quite a big DJ, America's Top Forty. And he put twenty grand in, and different people put money in. And Moana had twenty five thousand. She was up in a jail in Pennsylvania. Wow. So eventually, we we got bailed. I'm assuming you can't go back to America. No, well, in the bail application, the Air Force said I was a national security threat yep. to the United States, which was very flattering, but hardly anything to do with reality. Yeah, and. Uh, yeah, being if you're convicted of a crime of moral turpitude, that's what they got Charlie Chaplin on to mm. to keep me out of the states. So they eventually dropped that, and um, I had my deportation hearing actually where Julian's going to be brought to in Alexandria, Virginia, which is very CIA dominated mm. uh, with Langley there and stuff. Yeah, and just leading up to my deportation hearing, uh, the World Trade Center bombing happened, uh, Waco happened, and half of them were Australians and Kiwis and. English, non, non-Americans. And then two CIA were shot at Langley by an Al-Qaeda operative um, leading up to... So it was a bad atmosphere to have a deportation hearing where Moana had one five months earlier and she got a plea bargain where they didn't deport her. Oh, right. And she left voluntarily. Yep. So, so um, you, you you make your way to the UK. Did did you have a passport? Like you're a dual citizen to get? Did they? They were happy to have okay, you. Okay, so I got deported back here. Yes, and, and the Christian Brothers gave me a job teaching truants out at Logan. Yeah, and then I went to New Zealand, uh, helped start a Catholic worker there in Christchurch with Moana, and came back here and we started a Greg Shackleton house at St Mary's in South Brisbane, and that was focused on East Timor before it became mainstream popular, really. And uh, named after the Queensland journalist who was killed at Balibo, Greg Shackleton. And we brought his widow, Shirley, up to, to open it. And we did a lot of good activism around that. And then in the beginning of 96, four women broke into a British aerospace facility in Lancashire in England. And I knew one of them. 
And ironically, uh, there's such respect for private property in America, if not for human life, that when we got out of jail, they gave us our hammers back and our bolt cutters. And you're we, kidding. And we sent them you're, off to England. You're kidding. And they were used twice, three times there. And they kept getting them back. And then we used the same hammer in Ireland in 2003. So Where is that hammer now? It's in a, it's in a hammer, <laughs> a pacifist dump in, uh, Kilkenny, I think. It's, it's still, they haven't been put beyond use. Okay. They're still out there. All right. And, haven't uh, been lost. No, no, no. Obviously got, no, no. An artist friend of mine used them for a few art projects and stuff. Yeah. Right. But one of them's done quite a few million dollars worth of disarmament. Yeah. Wow. So in 96, I went to organize around these women's trial in Liverpool and they were acquitted. It's the first time a plowshares group had ever been found now guilty. Mm. The lawyer in that case is Gareth Pierce, who had freed the Guildford Four on the Birmingham Six. Mm-hmm. She's Emma Thompson plays her in the name of the father. She's now defending Julian Assange. Yep. She's about 80 now, Gareth. And John Pilger gave evidence in that case. Jose Ramos Horta, later becomes President, Prime Minister of East Timor, gave evidence. And the local Scousers in Liverpool mobilised. There's a lot of really good solidarity. So we end up forming a community, and these East Timorese had occupied embassies in Jakarta, who'd been given safe passage to Portugal, came and joined us. <clears throat> and we kept breaking into BAE every three or four months, and BAE took me to the High Court. They also put a spy in our group for three years. Right. Uh, Did you expect to have a spy put in the group? Well, as soon as the women were acquitted, the Lancashire Special Branch approached a former policewoman to infiltrate us, and she went to the Guardian, got wired up, went to a second meeting with Special Branch and uh, exposed it. And then we were pretty stupid not to expect them to try again. And this time, BAE approached a private security firm uh, who'd already had infiltrated campaign against the arms trade, including that a, a guy who was a full-time paid worker, and he was working for this security group. And they got this guy who went under the name Alan Fossey, but who have learned is Sergeant Alistair, who used to be in 14 Company, and they're the ones who did the spying and targeting for the SAS in Northern Ireland. So he was in and around our group for three years, and that was eventually exposed by the Sunday Times. Right. Mm. Must have been a shock for you when you found out. Well, I didn't like him, and I I had a kind of intuitive feeling, but I was saying that's, you know, I've raised... Kind of, I don't know, anti-English, but definitely sceptical of them. So I was kind of telling myself, no, that's your, just your prejudice against English and stuff. And yep. I should have went with my gut feeling, really. Yeah. Uh, anyway. So you were... Because he would have been feeling... The, the most dangerous thing was he would have been feeding intel back to the Indonesian embassy in London, putting people's lives in danger in his team mm. of the guys who were active in England. You know? mm. yeah. So subsequent to that, did you in your activities then have to be mindful of spies? Do we, did you change your practices thinking well, there could be a spy amongst your group? Yeah, in retro, retrospect, it's 2020 vision. So even in the late 70s, most the anarchists used to gather at Planet Press in the Valley, and now we learn that Dan Van Blackham, who ran that press, was recruited by Don Lane into the special branch as a special branch informant in the late 1960s, initially portrayed the Nazi party. And then later he turned his attention to the anarchists. So we were infiltrated pretty early on. And then in Dublin, I think we were infiltrated, and I think we were infiltrated in London as well. So anyway. It's pretty hard to, it's pretty hard to sort of know what to do. You, 
what what do you do? You've got a group of a handful of people or dozens, and if you're going to organise something, it's it'd be difficult to try and. Well, if you're doing uh, if you're doing anything high risk, it's got to be on a need to know basis. So I've been in environments where I sense something big is going to happen, but I'm not involved in it. Yep. So I don't need to know, so I don't ask. Yep. And if someone doesn't need to know, you don't tell them because that makes them vulnerable to conspiracy charges. Yeah. So you have to be quite disciplined about that. And uh, yeah. So you had an, um, Northwood headquarters in Northwood, Hertfordshire. You sprayed some red paint on a sign, got arrested for that. And yeah, so we we had two Catholic, we started a Catholic worker house in Harringay, Giuseppe Conlin House in 2010, and there's also a Catholic worker farm at Hertfordshire, and also out there is Northwood headquarters, and that's a NATO base. Mm-hmm. And it's also where they ran the Falklands War from. It's a very very significant base, and like the mainstream anti-war movement, you know, run by the Trotskyist groups and the Labor Party, never took people out there. You know, they had people marching in their tens of thousands up and down empty streets in London, mm. but we focused on resistance there, and that was a place to go. You know, and and you know these groups are infiltrated at the highest levels as well. They stopped the War Coalition in London, mm-hmm. Irish anti-war movement. Um, and, uh, and they they basically steer people into these dead end protest channels. Yep. And um, yeah, the movement never significantly moved from protest to resistance in Ireland or England, really. Yep. Um, so yeah, we were arrested out there. We were raided by the counter terror squad at the farm. Um, I think I was I was detained six times in two years under counter terrorist legislation. Dublin, Belfast, London, and uh, and did you think to yourself at the time, "Gee, we've been unlucky to be caught this many times. How did we end well, up?" Did you ever think? No, they're they've got unlimited resources, right. and especially what we did in Ireland just totally embarrassed them. And they spent millions and millions of euros on us in Ireland. Yeah, and uh, so so maybe talk about what happened in Ireland with the pit stop ploughshares. Okay. Yeah. Um, or the pissed off flashes. Yes, at, at uh, Shannon Airport. Okay, so after doing the the last thing with the Team Marie stuff, I did about a ten week vigil outside the Indonesian Embassy in London as a leading up to voting for independence there and stuff. And then I came back and we did the action at Jabaluka, where we disabled uranium mine equipment, and so I ended up in jail in Darwin, and um, went back, went to moved to Ireland and oh. Two and the Americans had already started bombing Afghanistan. And Dan Berrigan was visiting, and Dan's quite well known in Ireland. When Bobby Sands was dying, he requested to meet the Berrigans. They flew over, but the Brits wouldn't let them in to visit him. Um, <clears throat> so we had an event, and 2,000 people turned up to it. Like, we only had room for 1,000, had 10,000 people away, and that was in mid 2002. And then Quite rapidly at the end of that year, five of us got together. Like eight days before the action, two two people had never met the other two. Whereas in America, we were, Moana and I were processed for 11 months. For every second weekend, we were taken to a secret location for preparation. And different people came in and left the group. And then in the August of that year, Bill and Sue joined and we closed the group. We were ready to act then. And it was another six months before we did, mm. but we're meeting every two weeks in a very disciplined way. This one was kind of thrown together and 
we broke into Shannon Airport, which was a civilian airport on the West Coast that had been rapidly militarised to refuel for American troop movements. And um, we were able to disable a US Navy warplane that was en route to Iraq, and we turned it around and sent it back to Texas. So we were arrested, um, denied bail initially. So I was in Limerick Prison for about a month. And then when I was took bail... Because uh, we were being misrepresented, like the mainstream media was saying a police officer was assaulted during the action, and obviously I was being my size, I was the likely suspect. Mm. And then, you know, when we went to trial, three times we went to trial two years later, that yes. police officer got up and said that I had comforted him while he was having a stress attack. Right. But, you know, on the front page of the Irish Times, it was that I had assaulted the police, you know, bullshit. And also, it's the other lie that said is we cost the Irish taxpayer. It was a two, we charged with two and a half million dollars criminal damage, and the Irish taxpayer was going to pick up that bull, bill, which was bullshit. Um, yeah. And uh, so I had to come out and like explain the action. Uh, so I was going around giving talks to different places, and the other people finally all came out <laughs> and. Um, the bail conditions were quite harsh. I had to sign on every day at a specific police station, Pierce Street, near Trinity College there, and I wasn't allowed in the County Clare where the airport was and also banned from two-mile radius US Embassy in Dublin. So it was very restrictive uh, bail conditions. And in that period I was working uh, in a homeless shelter uh, uh, for chronic alcoholics in Dublin. Yeah. Mm. So there were th- three trials. The first two were yeah. aborted. So um, the first one, let me see my name. Judge, Judge O'Donnell agreed with defence counsel arguments that his adjudication was tainted with a perception of bias. <laughs> How did that Yeah, he was so keen to jail us that he pulled the trigger too early. So he, we had two of the top two barristers in Ireland who volunteer their services, you know, yep. agreed with their action, basically. And a very good junior barrister, a very good solicitor. Uh, but we later learned that this was his first criminal trial, actually. <laughs> he didn't tell us that. But it was very, very good. It came all the way from Cork. And um, we had a very good legal team. So I guess we kind of gifted our liberty, and these yeah. people gifted their legal skills, and yes. other people, musicians, yep. were doing stuff for us. And yep. People driving us around. So, like, so in his comments or directions, he made it clear okay. he was biased. Okay. So, yeah. So they outside tried to introduce a witness, and he ruled out a def- out, our defence without hearing defence arguments. Right. He was a, that keen to knock us off. Right. So, but he had the presence of mind. He said he'll think about this over the weekend. Came back, and um, he he ruled like we disabled the plane and then we formed a circle and prayed and he said that we weren't serious about disabling the plane because we stopped right and we're saying you know we said obviously doesn't believe in the efficacy of prayer but um he he had the presence of mind to say the media couldn't report on on what had happened and uh, so six months later we went back to trial yes and it went for 11 days and we had a kind of apparition on 11th day that this judge was a personal friend of george bush how did you find that out well, we put it down to an angelic apparition. Right. I can't really say. Oh, anyway, so, okay. um, yep. so, so, so we had this meeting and, and we are like, you know, should we go back and confront him with this? And I'm like, what's the negatives? And they said, well, you know, he might sentence heavier. And we all looked at each other and said, yeah, let's go and get him. Yeah, so we went back into court and he 
he fled the court in such a panic that he forgot to put a media ban. So the next day, next day, there's photos of him and George Bush. Now, right at the beginning of that trial, when they were picking the jury, he was saying that if there's any perception of bias, you should recluse, you know, stand down. Yes. And a woman had already been chosen, got up and said, look, I've just recalled my daughter's an airline stewardess and it might look that I'm prejudiced. And our, our barristers got up and said, I want to thank you on your integrity. And the judge said, I too want to thank you on your integrity. Yeah. Well, this guy had no integrity. He'd attended the first inauguration of George Bush. Yeah. You know, he'd been invited to both inaugurations. Yes. So then we went to trial a third time. Yes. And um, we ran out of defence and we were unanimously acquitted. Yes. Which, uh, so Judge Miriam Anderson had agreed on day nine. With, yeah. Um, so um, acquitted because... Uh, the jury feels you honestly believe that you were acting to save lives and property in Iraq and Ireland and the disarmament action was reasonable, taking into consideration all of the circumstances. Yeah, so we had a reasonably held belief, which is subjective, that in the circumstances we understood them to be subjective, that by damaging property, Shannon Airport Island would trigger a chain of events that would preserve life in Iraq. Yes. And we called this expert witness who's former RF wing commander, came out from England and he talked about logistics, you know, and, yep. uh, and that helps. And we also had US military veterans, you know, including guys killed people at a checkpoint and stuff, uh, testify to the brutal nature of the war. And we had Dennis Halliday, who was UN guy running the All for Food program, who resigned denouncing the sanctions of genocidal. The Irish Quaker guy, he he testified with Kathy Kelly, who was there under the bombing in Baghdad. So the jury ended up hearing a lot of good evidence. Mm. And it took them four and a half hours to decide. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. So yeah. When, I mean, I was, when after four and a half hours they said the jury's ready, you must have felt confident. Yeah. Well, I've, I'm like my mother. I'm, I'm a natural pessimist. And I was packed, cleared my social calendar, and I was told I was going to get at least three years. Uh, yep. My history. And, uh, when you were doing the action, did you have any idea that this possible defence was there that you might be able to use? Um, I don't know. I think Damien. Damien was young. He'd never been arrested before. He's a seminarian. He was in our group, and he's <laughs> a lot brighter than me. And I don't know if he had looked at that. Right. I hadn't. It really. Because you went into it expecting again to go to jail for three to four years. Yeah, I also assumed, like in New York, we defended ourselves. We had yes. co-counsel who'd advise us. Yep. Um, and I thought at least some of us would defend ourselves. But the group, there were two two Irish-born people who had never been arrested before, done these kind of things. And then the Scottish woman, the American woman, had done actions before, but not, not facing this much amount of time. Mm. So in the, in the end... I had I deferred to the group that um, would all be represented, yeah. Yeah. yeah, and they did a good, very good job. The legal team, so yeah. I thought, well, I've done the action now. They can run a trial. If someone wants to write a song, they can write a song about it. Yeah, and I so you know, and then we got a lot of support. About first trial, about fifty Catholic worker plowshares people came from the states. Yep. So it was a big reunion. Hadn't seen these people for ten years and stuff. Yep. And um, yeah, it was, and then uh, yeah, it was great. Now, these days, you're living in Brisbane yeah, and you're playing soccer with refugees. Yeah. Cause, cause we had to work around that for this interview. <laughs> what, what else are you doing here? Well, I came back 
two years ago because my mother was developing dementia and she can't really be left alone. So the the previous 10 years, you know, helped start this Catholic worker house, uh, housing about 22 homeless refugees in London. And, um, and then I met Julian late 2010. So I was Julian and Chelsea Manning were my big focuses and I hooked up with Chelsea Manning's family in Wales and we did a lot of good solidarity work, especially Dublin, Wales. And, and yeah, with Julian, used to visit him in the embassy and I had a god, I've got a godson who was in the British SAS who became a Catholic pacifist. So for a while we were Julian security, get him into court, out of court, kind of running the scenes outside the court scene. Mm-hmm scenes at the high court and then outside the embassy and inside the embassy visiting him and then at the beginning of 2018 i was asked to i was i went back to ireland and i was asked to to keep a presence up outside the embassy because i think from march 2018 when they turned the internet off on julian they felt that it could happen at any time Mm. and then november 2018 it was getting really bad but they were pretty much live streaming to the CIA and back to Ecuador. The local cops are live streaming outside. Uh, the special branch was visibly there outside. Um, and they asked me to move to be 24-7. So I, I took up residence on the street. Right. <laughs> and it was like English winter, you know. And then the royal family of Qatar turned up. They owned the right. building. And Harrods, the building Julian was in, and the next building and so, you know, there's just heaps of security and eventually these three guys, a Belgian guy, a German guy, and a Polish guy. They walk uh, into a bar. <laughs> they walk sounds into like a the start, bar. Sounds yeah. like the start of a joke. <laughs> they, and they're all very skill, manually skilled. And they, this Belgian guy especially, just went around these work sites, got all this wood and built me like a coffin with wheels and handles. And um, so I could sleep in this coffin box, really. And so I was sleeping on Hans Crescent. This is like the wealthiest part of London, full of Saudi princes, Russian oligarchs, football managers and players and stuff. And and, and then all of a sudden there was 18 princesses there, you know. And um, so I ended up getting fed by the royal family for a while. Um, yeah, so anyway, I was getting harassed. They were threatening to get rid of me with an ASBO. And uh, I thought, oh, they've got an ASBO for Hans Crescent. They haven't got one for this dead end lane under Julian's an, an bedroom. An ASBO, antisocial behaviour. Oh, oh, right. And uh, which they need very little evidence from. So the night they raided me, I got up, emptied my box, a special branch like directly opposite, and and I wheeled it down to the dead end between Julian's window and this other building that that goes down seven floors where all the Harrods trucks warehousing would happen at eleven loading ramps down there. So the last 15 metres of this lane was kind of a dead dead zone. No one used it. And I just, you know, pulled up there. Mm-hmm. But there was just heaps of security. Those Harrods had their own security. Then there was Special Branch. Then there's a local plod. And then there was SO18. And then there's Ecuadorian security. And then the royal family had their own security. Yep. So it was just layers and layers of security. And a lot of the time I had a small group of people who were, like, supporting me. Uh, but a lot of the time I was just there by myself, you know. Right. And, uh, and in this lane, there were 23 cameras. So and, it was very. And, and you were there for the purpose of, of what? Well, I knew Julian and, and, you know, um, and we we're friends and like he, he likes me. Like he, I think he kind of finds me pretty humorous. And, um, 
because I'm I'm not tech at all. Like all yeah. this stuff goes over my head. So he could look out the window and he'd see a friendly face, you know. Right. Yeah. And then they weren't allowing anyone there after five p.m. So he's by himself from five p.m. through till nine a.m. in the morning, and um, you know. They were suspecting they'd be raided and that I was supposed to give an alert or something. And uh, I was also doing counter-surveillance. Like, um, I began recruiting people around the area to help and then also working out where Special Branch were and and stuff and feeding that back into Julian. Right. Mm. Yep. So we're recording this on and the... I was going through the, the embassy's trash as well and kind of trying to find anything relevant. Right. right. Mm. Yep. Yep. Um, we're recording on the 16th of June. Uh, we've recently had a new government in Australia, a Labor government. So there's a, I don't know, in the circles I frequent, a sort of a, a bit of an optimism that maybe the Albanese government will be working in the background to hopefully get something done in Julian's favour. What's your feelings or thoughts on his prospects? I think, you know, I think the national security state would have even stopped Trump pardoning him. I think Trump and Pompeo, I think, is a driving force to crucify Julian. I think the Americans must feel that damaged him enough physically and mentally now that he won't ever have the capacity he had in 2010, you know. And uh, if the, he was a popular figure in Australia, which I can't see any evidence that he is, mm. um, the Americans would let him go, saying because they need Australia in terms of their strategy to, to yes. encircle China. Um, <clears throat> the Labor Party people, except for Julian Hill and some backbenchers, but the heavyweights, they never say anything of principle. They don't talk about free speech. Like Barnaby Joyce actually talks about, not that I'm a fan, but free speech, yeah. national sovereignty. He's yep. Australian. And Bob Carr, now that he's retired, you know, yes. talks about these principles. But the only thing you get out of Barnaby, uh, Albanese and Penny Wong is it's gone on too long, which is a bit like on board. It's gone on too long. And maybe, you know, maybe there's something happening in the background, but in the foreground you need a lot of noise and interventions and uh, and it's very hard since back, back in Brisbane I don't even know where to stand with a sign in this town really you know yes. like where the context would make sense or um, so you know the most you know I've accompanied Julian's dad on speaking gigs and stuff in Nimbin and Lismore and here and I've um, I've done a bit of solo vigiling um, but uh, you know like I, I confronted Boris Johnson in Dublin by myself, and mm-hmm. I confronted Alexander Downer in London on the street as well. So, right, those opportunities don't seem to arise here that much. No, no. yeah. So you sound a bit pessimistic, really. Still, you're not. I'm naturally pessimistic, um, yeah. and I told that to Julian. You know, I remember saying to Julian, "I don't, I don't think your feet are ever going to touch the pavement again." Mm. And given that he was carried from the embassy to the, <laughs> to the yeah, it's prophetic so far. And, um, mm. you know, I, I was very pessimistic, um, about his, his fate really. And, and they did such a job, especially in England on character assassination and the lazy, cowardly response to the plight of Julian Assange is of some cynical quip. And if, but if you look at it closely, You'll see that what they've done is, and the Guardian's worst culprit, 
is to weaponize his disability, his aspergers against him, and somehow present him as an arrogant arsehole, which mm. I know him personally he's not. Mm. And uh, mm. it's yeah, it's a slow motion crucifixion, and it's it's tragic, uh, and uh, and. Yeah, he's done a lot better than I thought he would in jail, uh, that he hasn't died. Um, like I ended up, I lived on, once he was taken, I then moved to Belmarsh Prison and I had a set up on the traffic island at the front of Belmarsh Prison for, right. uh, for about six weeks. And then the Labor Council, Woolwich Labor Council, not only took my stuff, they actually cut down the little trees I used to hang a banner between. Like right. that little scorched earth, like put through a wood chip, you know. Um, you must be quite adept at, at living rough on the streets. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, well, yeah. I mean, you soften up pretty quickly, don't you? Get used to things and stuff. But um, yeah. yeah, that was pretty wild. Yeah. yeah. Um, so, given the circles you mix in and the circles he mixes in, it just you naturally came across each other at some point. Is that what happened? Yeah. I mean, yeah. at the moment, as you were saying. My, I don't get out of this house much. I go, I try and go to church in a soup kitchen, South Brisbane on Sunday. I try and play soccer with the refugees on a Tuesday afternoon. I try and go to the pub once a week with a Welsh mm. mate. And, but most of the time I've been, you know, pretty much stuck in the house with my mum. Mm. Um, I knew he was in real trouble in the end of 2010. I was at his first court appearance and I thought that really, you know, people will be distancing themselves. Uh, very quickly from him and um, and I had to think for 24 hours you know do I risk what credibility I have um, supporting him and I decided to do that yep and uh, and uh, it's just the you know, people you'd ex- like two million people marched against the war that he opposed two million people in London marched against that war yes and there were hardly an English people around the embassy supporting him at all. They're mostly South Americans and Australians and Irish and stuff. Mm. Um, so, you know, you just think, where is solidarity gone? You know, mm. where's the culture of solidarity? Mm. Uh, Speaking of solidarity then, Chelsea Manning, parts I've read, has been incredibly courageous in dealing with the US authorities when they were wanting sort of further dirt on Julian or cooperation yeah. regarding Julian and Chelsea said no. She Went struck jail, me yes. Yeah. Struck me as somebody very tough. Very courageous, yeah. And uh yeah, we had a great time with her mother and uncle and aunts and very working class Welsh family and uh um in Haverford West and uh the mother's passed away now and the uncle's passed away. But yeah, Chelsea 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 was tortured, you know, I think in Kuwait and in um, Quantico mm. and then ended up in a military prison and seemed to handle that quite well, I think, mm. as things go. But was looking at, it was doing 35 years. Yes. And you, you watch Obama's last speech as president. He's at a press conference explaining why he hasn't pardoned Manning but was commuting the sentence. <clears throat> and at, at no, no point does he mention the word Iraq. Now, this is a war that he opposed. He voted against as a senator, denounced as a stupid war. Um, and the only thing you hear from him is Chelsea's done hard time. Meaning we've tortured the person, yes. and and some other thing. But um, yeah, I don't think Obama and Chelsea had attempted suicide twice at that point, and I don't think Obama wanted that on his liberal record. Have that death, yeah, 
And, uh, and Chelsea will never be in a situation to cause that da- damage to the empire again, but neither will Snowden, you know, yes. where Julian, they, they perceive, has the capacity. To- mm. It's fascinating, Kieran. <laughs> it's, it's quite a life. It is fascinating. So um, I'm interested in your combination of religious belief and political right. activism, and you mentioned earlier that one of the differences when you went to America was there was an acceptance of faith and religiosity, whereas in Australia, when you're perhaps dealing with left-wing groups, when you when religion is brought up, it's it's quickly dismissed. And I have to confess, I've got a my personal dislike of religions. <laughs> um, yeah, I've done my intel on you, <laughs> and so I find it. Uh, unique that you're able to combine what I find is a distasteful um, practice with something that is a positive practice. So um, if you weren't religious, I mean, you can consider yourself Catholic still, you identify as Catholic or spiritual or Catholic, yep. So, you know, if, if you didn't have that faith, would all... Could you have done all these things anyway? Would it have all have made sense and, and have been a life that you could have done in the absence of faith and religion? Um, I think uh, it wouldn't have, If God doesn't exist, it doesn't make... If God does not exist, this life wouldn't have made much sense, no. There's no rational basis for it. And, you know, I think we're all... Given my background and... Um, you know, I was raised uh, anti-imperialist, uh, Irish Catholic, and Irish Catholic meant being oppressed rather than oppressing. <laughs> and, um, and you know, the Christian brothers were kind of working class and, and, uh, and so I guess culturally, and I was an altar boy for eight years. So yes. I, and the thing about Catholicism is that most of our history we've been illiterate. So how things are handed down is not through the word, which is very Protestant. Yes. Those traditions develop after the printing press. Yeah. So it's all about ambience and costume and the sacrament and ritual and movement, art, you know. So I'm very comfortable and familiar with that and, um, and the Irish thing being more figurative than literal and, so, you know, I can immediately relate to Irish Americans and Irish in London or Irish in Ireland. Like, there's a cultural thing there as well. Mm. Um, and, you know, I guess the conclusion I reached early was that as soon as Christianity, Christian discipleship uh, compromises on the issues of an anarchist orientation toward power and a pacifist orientation toward violence, um, which has been co-opted, you know, but everything faces co-option, punk rock, Irish Republicanism, feminism, Green Party. Um, So so what's the anarchism aspect of your philosophy? So when when I think anarchism, I think just chaos without organisation or hierarchy, I guess. The really funny was in Liverpool in the 90s, this guy came up to me and said, I just bought this really big book on anarchism, Demanding the Impossible. Military helicopters. Yeah, yeah. This, <laughs> the military passing overhead, and, and he goes, um, he goes. I just bought this big book on anarchism. Demanding impossible. He says, "You're in the index between Oppenheimer and Orwell." <laughs> <laughs> oh, that's that's great. O'Reilly between Oppenheimer. Oh, that's and, good. Uh, 
That's so I kind of think, you know, a theologian I'm into is written on Mark's Gospel, Chad Myers, in his second book, he posits that Jesus asks questions rather than giving answers and says the only thing he tells us definitively is to pick up the cross, you know, but everything else is like a Zen Cohen question. And so I think both, because anarchism and pacifism are def- negative definitions, they're much better questions than answers. So an anarchist should be someone who lives with the question, how do I live a life without exploiting anyone mm-hmm. or uh, lording it over anyone is in scripture. Yeah. And pacifists, how do I live a life without violence, you know? Mm-hmm. And I think those two things are implicit to Christian discipleship. But obviously, I thought we had a pretty good run for the first 300 years. And then we get co-opted by Constantine and, and it goes from a very short period of being illegal to be a Christian in Rome for being an atheist because you're not worshipping the gods, sanctioned gods, uh, to being illegal not to be one, yes. you know. And, and, but in all these traditions, there's radical, ra- the word radical is Latin for a turn to the roots. There's, you'll still meet radical punk rockers and radical feminists, even though those traditions are largely co-opted, um, right, and trade unionists. And so these things related in the gospel to the temptations of the desert the t- of power, wealth, and status. Mm. And that, you know, we just did a vigil outside the Anzac Day Mass where they've got guns in the cathedral. Yes. Right? Yeah. I saw that on Facebook. <laughs> and, uh, you know, there's a bishop quite comfortable with the governor turning up in a Rolls Royce and with the head of the police chief and all these securocrats and, and, you know, and totally uncomfortable with his flock holding a banner up, you know, no guns in churches (laughs) and just saying, oh, but I think my father was kind of relatively anti-clerical. Yeah. Well, Well, see, wouldn't you be better suited in some way with the Protestant world because, in the Protestant world, anyone could be a minister and, and people work out the faith for themselves from the book and it doesn't have the hierarchy of the Catholic Church. So um, wouldn't, wouldn't, in a sense, <laughs> that philosophy be more suited to anarchism than a Catholic anarchism? Yeah, there are. Because Catholics are about hierarchy and and I think it's found- easier to go from a feudal society to an anarchist utopia than it is from an industrial society. And obviously Catholicism historically is more related to feudalism, you know, and the Protestant work ethic to capitalism, industrialism, the traditions and cultures. Uh, and there are, like, I'm not saying Christianity has monopoly on anarchist expression. There are Anabaptist and Quaker, radical Quakers. Yep. Richard Nixon was a Quaker. But, um, and humanists and Buddhists who are anarchists and, uh, pacifists. And, um, what did James, they asked James Joyce when he left the church, are you going to adopt a, one of the Protestant denominations? And he said, I've lost my faith, not my mind. <laughs> <laughs> but, um, yeah, so I, and I have good Protestant, some of my best friends are Protestants. And also, they've obviously got the scripture and we took the sacraments in a general yes. kind of way. And, I think pagans and Catholics are the best at organising demonstrations because they've got a sense of of um, choreography right. and ritual. Yes. Uh, so I've done a few workshops with Starhawk. Was, uh, ever heard of Starhawk? No. <laughs> she's the only um, witch denounced by the Vatican in modern times. <laughs> she's, and she was on Matthew Fox's uh, thing at Berkeley. Okay. But she does these workshops a day on spirituality and day on activism. And... Um, 
I think her long-term partner is an ex-Catholic worker who went to jail during the Vietnam War. But uh, the Protestant and the Marxists who, you know, come after the printing press, their rallies are just speech after speech after speech. They've got no sense of, of choreography or nuance. Right. or And um, they really believe in the spoken word and the uh, of yeah. the book. Okay. Know? So they're partly cultural things, I guess, you know. So I, I don't go recruiting for the Catholic Church. Yes. And... Uh, uh, I don't think the Catholic Church is that big on recruitment. Like, uh, no. I don't think Jews and Catholics recruit that much. No. Whereas, you know, if you ask someone, Brisbane, what do you associate with socialists, it would be the same what you associate with born-again Christians. They're trying to convert you, you know, mm. and sell you a newspaper or recruit you. So. Mm. Yeah. They're more low-key for sure. The traditional churches are more low-key than the new muscular evangelicals coming out of America. Yeah, well, that's... Those that form of Christianity is overtly a part of their foreign policy, just like the Sauds have their own form of Islam that they wield. Yeah. Uh, the Americans have developed this prosperity gospel that fits into imperialism and capitalism, and the CIA have actually pushed it to counter <coughs> liberation theology in South America, yeah. America. And that's where you find what you're talking before, people breaking open the scriptures themselves and lay groups. Yeah. So uh, in Ireland we would... Um, on a Sunday, we'd have a liturgy with mostly without a priest, and we'd um, you know say a few prayers for people, and then we'd, we'd read the scripture and we'd go around a circle, and people would give their feedback on it, and then we'd break some bread and share some wine, you know, and and I felt most comfortable in that atmosphere, and you know, ideally that's what I'd be doing on a weekly basis, and maybe going to church once a month, mm-hmm. just to keep in contact with the tradition. Yep. Um, but that hasn't been happening for me for the last couple of years. So I've just started going to this mass in a soup kitchen. Mm. Now, you've you mentioned before about you got some mentorship uh, by the Berrigans, I think. But if you were to mentor somebody, a young person who wanted to change the world today, but maybe didn't want to go so far as getting arrested, <laughs> what what what's your advice to the young people who want to change? The world today, yeah, I don't think, yeah, I don't think prison should be entered into lightly, and I think there's parts of my personality that were quite suited to the environment, or that I was robust enough to survive it. Partly that was um, Christian Brothers education, <laughs> but, but um, you know, so I wouldn't be trying, looking for like plowshares cannon fodder, um, yep. and. You've really got to be convinced that this is so significant. And for some young people, it is the environment. Mm. Uh, you've got to be convinced that waking up every morning in jail is where you need to be to say a very loud no to what's going on. Mm. There's only going to be a limited number of people with that level of commitment. Yeah, but even the basic praxis of the Catholic worker, which is like serving dash solidarity with the poor or the homeless, Mixed with prophetic, I'd say resistance rather than witness. Um, so you meet some people who are just into, you know, crying out for peace and justice, and often they get co-opted by NGOs and end up part of managing the empire. Yeah. Or you get some people who are just working with the homeless, and they get kind of co-opted by social work managing the managing the homeless. And I've, I lived with a Christian atheist in London for about a year, and. Um, 
He uh, so Christian atheist. Let me guess. <laughs> did not believe in a divine God, but believed in the the ideals of Christ in terms of loving your neighbour and helping the poor. Is that is yeah? That, is that a Christian he, he'd also argue that each political change revolution was preceded by a religious one, and the obvious one was Protestant work ethic and capitalism. But yep. I can't really articulate. Uh, I'll send you a little video about him. Okay. Peter Lumsden, his name was. But he used to volunteer at three soup kitchens. He was kind of retired at that stage, two Christian ones and a Jewish one. And what he noticed was that people willing to volunteer and work in the kitchen talk to other volunteers, but very few were willing to actually eat with the homeless and break bread with the homeless. And he wrote this thing on the Eucharist from an atheist perspective about this is what Jesus did, you know. And um, it was funny because that related to my experience in jail with people willing to have sex with their transsexual yes. prostitutes, but not eat with them, you know? Yes. We're always kind of willing to eat with them, but not have sex with them. Yes. <laughs> and, um, so when you go to a soup kitchen, you eat with the... Well, that's what I did today. Yeah. Like, you know, I looked around, they seemed to have enough staff, so... And I told them, if you want me to do anything, I'll do it. But I just sat there for a couple of hours chatting to right. people. Yeah. So in Australia or in Brisbane today, someone who's homeless uh, and is at a soup kitchen... Um, is it because of uh, – I have the impression that mental illness would be a, a major factor in that because I, my impression would be that there are programs and facilities out there for people and I, I sort of hear stories of, of government workers trying to bring people into housing but the people wanting to stay on the streets. And I feel – is that – a Am I completely right or wrong or somewhere in between? Is mental illness and people's it's reluctance to come history in? History of, of child it? abuse and mental illness and, like, some of the shelters in the States run by the state were brutal, you know, worse than prisons, really, mm-hmm. and that some people would feel more vulnerable there to being bullied or robbed or whatever. And um, well, the place I went to today has obviously got a very disciplined environment that people realise that they're entering into a safe space and stuff. Yeah. And um, so, yeah, it's interesting. So. But, I mean, I've largely been away from Australia yeah. a long time and last two years I, I haven't been out that much. Yeah. Okay. Now, just to finish off, Kieran, and you'll be very generous with your time, but we're on the home straight okay. last bit. Just in terms of um, today's big problems, so I, I'll give you a couple, and, and I'm interested in how you would rank them in okay. terms of what what you see as the most important. So, one would be sort of Murdoch and and media manipulation of of the agenda and truth. So, media and information and, and monopoly control. Second one might be just the U.S. empire and its control of so many aspects of the world. Uh, third might be inequality in terms of worldwide inequality, climate change or any other, you know, topic that you might think when you think about what the big problems are in the world, what what do you see as the prime? Yeah, I think I'm trying to remember them all now, but and obviously there's been a big change that I haven't been that sensitive to about, you know, the internet and media. Um, like I remember in the 80s a few of us, trooped down to this migrant resource centre to watch a film about El Salvador. We'd never heard of El Salvador before, really. And it was this brutal film. And 
Then we marched off to the pub, you know, about a dozen of us. And like, what are we going to do about this? And now we're kind of probably getting more information, but we receive it totally isolated on yep. the internet, on a laptop or a phone. And, you know, back then you watch this film, you turn to the person next to you and you go, fuck, that's bad, isn't it? What are we going to do? Whereas now you turn, fuck, that's bad, and there's no one there. Mm-hmm. And I've really, I've always enjoyed soapbox speaking. I did a lot of that in Hyde Park. I used to do that in Brisbane. And um, where people can interject and yes. you want people to interject because that gives you time to rest. Yeah. And you want debate. As soon as you get debate, the crowd builds and stuff. And then <clears throat> things happen in that environment that don't happen in a lecture theatre. People aren't as passive. And I remember being in Hyde Park and one guy said, I was in Iraq. Now, a total stranger on the other side of the crowd was in Iraq too. So they peeled off and probably had a really high-quality conversation, you know. Yes. So it's not all about the speaker. And I just think it's such a shame. Like, my father used to go to Centenary Park there in the 1950s and stuff, and uh, that went through the 1960s. But the lack of that speaker's corner thing. Mm-hmm. And, yeah, I'm not sure. Like, this German woman in West End recently told me that, I don't know if it's a German saying, she said, there are 10% wolves, 10% shepherds, and 80% sheep. <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> I'm not sure if that's accurate. But... um yeah, the media is so centralised, isn't it? And um, Our mutual friend Mario has been banging on about the Murdochs for decades yes. now. Yes. Um, yeah. And Mario, like, he's a lot more moderate than I am politically, you know. Yes. And, uh, so we have the same argument every week for the last 10 years. Um, and then environmentally, it looks, it kind of looks like it's too late, really. Mm-hmm. But um, it's good that people are pushing back and... But I think in the last period too, you've got a layer of management which is NGOs, yep. you know, and they're occupying a space that the left used to occupy, and the left has collapsed since probably since the collapse of the Soviet Union, actually. Yep. And um, so, and then say the Catholic work was always interactive with the left, and the 1930s it was a working class left. It was trade unions, the IWW. The 60s was an anti-imperialist left for Vietnam. Yep. Now, it's like, now who is it? Who, is there anyone? It's, it's the identity politics crowd right. claiming to be the left. And yes. they're like, you know, in the 70s, they, our critics used to joke about us saying, you know, land rights for gay whales, you know, and it's, yes. it's pretty close to that now. You know? yes. So, and that's so, that so, ideology just comes off the elite campuses of the United States. And yes. you see Australian young people adopt it just like the right wing adopt yes. Trumpism or whatever, you know. So, yes. you know, even, you know, how how are we just a suburb of the USA or is, is there any, any identity here that comes out of reflecting on our history or is it just straight off TV or yep. Disney World or something? Yeah, so basically the left has disappeared so the Catholic worker movement has no left to... To with. With. No, yeah. no, no, we've got our own problems mm. as a movement. And, um, you know, if we stop doing our own thinking, all we do is tail end the latest liberal bash left trend, you know, and uh, we've lost a lot of our best intellectuals, you know, the Berrigans and Dorothy Day and stuff. And um, so I think the good thing about Peter Moran, who founded our movement, was and uh, was reflection, clarification of thought, keeping to clarifying you know, what environment are we in? Why do we do what we do? Yep. And just to keep revisiting that. And there's, you know, in our culture, there's 
a lot of stimulation but very little reflection going on. Yeah, very little. You know, we're taught uh, either explicitly or implicitly that you shouldn't talk about you know, news or politics or sex or religion at the at the dinner party. I'm self-censoring that way. Yeah, and I, you know, with my podcast, I actually normally start an intro saying this is a politic, uh, a podcast about news and politics and sex and religion, all the things you're not supposed to talk about at a right. dinner party. When I attend barbecues or dinner parties or whatever and start raising topics, I find people love it. Oh, they like it. Oh, yeah, yeah. and they get into it and yeah. they – if. They, you know, disagree, but they enjoy the whole thing. Yeah. And I think people have become unskilled at analysing and thinking about society and what's good and bad and what we should be doing. Yeah. I think I think we've lost the capacity to to talk meaningfully about things. And I'll get into discussions with people and I'll think, boy... I'm like an A-grade tennis player with a beginner here. You you have not learnt some really fundamental things about concepts, ideas, debates, exchanging ideas. You you think you do, but you 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 haven't left first base yet. No. Um, so yeah, I think that's a problem. Um, so anyway, little podcast like this yeah. with 500 people listening or whatever. Uh, my little contribution <laughs> to that. So there you go. Well, Kieran. Uh, marvellous conversation. Oh, grand. Really yeah. enjoyed it. And um, at some stage, if anything happens and you want to announce something, um, okay. uh, let us know and we'll I'll, I'll take it. your email address and yeah. I'll, I'll flick you a few things, like the interview from jail in Texas and yeah. stuff like that. Uh, okay. And this Peter Lumsden guy. Great. All right, terrific. Thanks, Kieran.